So Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we, come bef- we come before you and we say we thank you for what you've done in the service, Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you for how you have been moving, Lord Jesus, we pray. Would you continue to send your Holy Spirit to speak into our innermost beings, into our innermost hearts? Would you meet us where we are at, wherever that is? Holy Spirit, we pray may we encounter you this morning. Jesus, may we encounter you this morning. God, may we encounter you this morning. And God, we pray anything that's of me, may it be forgotten about, may it be blown away in the wind, but God, everything that's of you, may it resound, will it stay in our, in our hearts, would it change, would it transform us, would it give us new, new life, a fresh start, a new beginning, would you transform us into being like you, in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19, and we're going to be starting from uh, verse 28, and it says this, 28, we're going down to verse 44, it says, and when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall tell this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, sat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke you. Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here we have... we. We know this. We know this story, story well. It gets told quite regularly, especially around Easter, ti- Easter time. But there's kind of this one bit that 
really just jumped out and, and just uh, stood out to me amongst all, all of that is that in verse 21, sorry, 21, 41 and 42, and he says, when he drew near, he wept over, wept over it and saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. That day was a special, significant day. It was an important day. It was a day that Jesus, right from the beginning, even before he said, let there be light, he knew that day. He knew that's where he was going. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, we just, we just go in there. That day was a purposefully built day. And there was no shying away from it, and there was no backing away from it, and he wasn't going to. And amongst that culture, you have this backdrop of Jerusalem, and we know that for Jerusalem and for the Jewish people, I mean, as a country and as a people, they've had it a bit rough. They've were, they started off in Egypt, became slaves in Egypt. The Assyrians conquered them, the Babylonians, the Medians, the Egyptians again, the Persians, Alexander the Great, and the, and the Greeks did it, the Pantheons, and then the Romans did it. So they have a whole history of people, of foreign countries coming in and taking over their land. And actually, if that happened to you, you'd be sick and tired of it as well, wouldn't you? They've been taken. They've been taken. They've been. Uh, they've been taken away to, to, and they spent years away from Jerusalem in the diaspora. Then, when it was time to come back, some of them stayed in the countries where they got taken away to. Others came back, and they started. And they started to rebuild what was perhaps what once was before. And with Rome then coming in and the Roman Empire, you have this beast of a Roman Empire where you have the technology advances, the infrastructure that they, that they bring, and the advancements that, that some, they do bring to some of the society. But amongst that, you bring the cruelty-ness. You have the slavery. You, you, have, you have the colonization of, of different countries. They, when they went, when they invaded somewhere, where they took over a, a city or a town, or they went across, there would normally be an architect that would go with... Uh, the army, and so when they eventually conquered the city, this architect's job would be to transform the city into somewhere that looks identical to Rome. So if Caesar was to walk and step upon that city, it would look identical to Rome. So he'll be at home. They totally went in and transformed. They were brutal. They were, they were brutal. They perfected death. Torture. It was an economic machine. The amount of money that needed just to keep the army up and running was enormous. And so they plundered everything. They, would import, they put tax, so much tax onto the people that they invaded. Not, not just like head tax, land tax. There'll be produce tax. 
you, you name it, if they could tax it, they would, and it'll be up to the, they'll be up to the hill. And some of it will go to the governors, but a lot of it will go back to Rome, and, put, and the produce that was, was around will be then sent out. It might be used to the governors. It'll go back to Caesar, some of the best stuff, but it'll be used to feed the, feed the army. And one of the energizer drinks that they used to do, they used to get old wine that, you know, it's a little bit past its sell-by date, but then they used to water it down and sort of use it a bit like an energy drink for the army and send it out by the gardens because the water preserved it a little bit. And so, before, so, the, so the armies had this almost like vinegary, watered-down bit of, I hate wine, I can't stand it, but can you imagine a, kind of, a, a wine that's gone a little bit out of day and they just added water to it and thought, you know, what the heck, it'll be fine. And then that sugar, that, and it acted a little bit like an energy energy drink with the with the sugars things. It, it must have been disgusting to taste, but I don't recommend I don't recommend it. But but that's what they used to do because it was cheap. It was just cheaper, and that used to be sent out. And the armies used to have have that. And and so you had this whole system of the Roman Empire just trying to keep itself to get trying to keep itself churning over where through taxes, where through slavery. We need people to build the roads. We need people to build infrastructure. We need people for entertainment. We need people, in, in, and we all know about the, the Colosseum. You know, we need people, we'll, we'll just take people from other countries from around. We'll make them slaves. We'll make them fight for us. They'll die, and we'll just cheer, and we'll just do a celebration. Such was the Roman Empire, and people loved them for it. Culture loved them for it, even though they brought death. And you have this backdrop, and then they come to to Jerusalem, and they're there, and they're trying to almost do the same thing. But the tensions with the Jews over time the tensions grew because they knew that with the amount of soldiers that they have, perhaps, perhaps around about, the Jews would revolt at any moment. There's, there's once, there's, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, um, some of the stuff that he reads is really fascinating. And he wrote, um, and he writes kind of about di- different revolts, but there's one a um, guy called Alexander, pronounced his name, Joannes. Uh, but when it came to this kind of sacrifice time of, of this, one of the offerings, um, the Pharisees said that, no, the water that needs to be poured in this, in this moment needs to be poured on the altar. And the Sadducees said, no, the water needs to be poured on the ground. And so this king of a high priest decided to, do you know what, I'm just going to pour the water on the ground. And with that, because the Pharisees were so keen about purity, about doing, you, you did things in certain orders, and most of the people of the crowd who were watching were with the Pharisees, as soon as they did that, in this important time where you couldn't undo this water, this important part, they revolted. They, got ang- they, they grew angry. They drew this. They, they revolted against. And, so, and it was so bad, so bad, they started pelting this guy with their citrons and going crazy. This guy then... This, then says to his, his, his army, who's a bunch of mercenaries, he said, do you know what, go for it. And so they killed 6,000 Jews in one day because they poured the water wrong. 
And so the Romans, they knew that if there was a little bit of unrest, at any moment there could be disorder, there could be a, a revolt. And this wouldn't go well against them with Caesar because everyone was afraid of Caesar. Even Caesar was perhaps a little bit scared of, him, scared of himself because people, as soon as you came Caesar, there was always someone trying to poison you, kill you, take you out and, and try and take your throne. Another army would come against Rome. And so not only have you got that, you've got to worry about the different revolts as well. And being a, gov- being a governor, if you're a governor of an area and you lost control of that area, you'll be sent to Caesar, Caesar and you'd probably be put to death, in which later on we knew that Pontius Pilate, Pilate uh, fell out and he got sent up to uh, see Caesar, but Caesar died before he got there and so he got away with it. But we don't know what, what else happened to him, but it's that same thing. So he had this tense tension with the governors and the people around the area that actually, they're trying to keep the peace. And Jerusalem at this time, if you were to take uh, Glasgow, um, I'm just trying to remember, I, I googled the, pop, pop, the population of Glasgow, I think it was 1.6, 1.9 million in the, in the city. If you were to times that by about 10, times that by 10, and all those people trying to find a holiday in, a premier, a be, a, you know, an Air, Airbnb, you're trying to hire a car. It's crazy. It's absolutely pandemonium. There's no room. The city swells up so big. There's people staying on, staying on, on roofs and rooftops out on the fields around. There is absolutely buzzing with people and, uh, and pilgrims coming back to Jerusalem for this special time of... Uh, for the, for, the, for, the, for the Passover. It's significant. One of the things, and they're, they're coming back, they're, they're wanting to celebrate um, leaving that exodus out of Egypt and God setting them, fr- God setting them free through the, the Red Sea. So, that they, so, some, so some of the pilgrims will come back to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the heart of the Jewish, Jewish religion, but also but the temple was seen as the presence of God. So not, not only did you have the heart of religion, but then you had the presence, the temple seen as literally the presence of God. And so you had synagogues in other towns and villages around which represented, but the actual presence of God was seen in the Jerusalem temple. And so it's really highly significant for them. So they're all coming back for this time. And, and Pilate, he becomes... Uh, one of the governors and rulers in in Judea in back back in I think it was around AD 25, 26 off the top of my head. And he goes and he's mainly based on the I'm just getting it right because it's the it's the opposite. On the west coast in Caesarea. Him and his he's got about five hundred to a thousand troops, they reckon. So he's on the coast. Night, getting, getting a tan, trying to sort things up. And every now and again, if there was a big festival, if there was a big feast, we don't know when he went to Jerusalem. There's a slight possibility it could have been on the same day as Jesus, but we can't prove it. It's speculation that it can. But at some point, around that same time, he is heading into Jerusalem because he knows tensions are going to be high. And so he is, walking, so he is marching into Jerusalem on a war horse, with his military presence, ar- presence around. And so not only have you got the garrison that is in, the, in Jerusalem, that if you read just Josephus, 
that you had the temple, but then the military garrison, garrison if you read some of the, the Bible uh, study Bibles now, they've got this small bit of the building on the end of the temple. But Josephus says, actually, the military compound actually was so big it overshadowed the temple. And so you have this study, so you have this contrast. And so he's war, so Pilate is walking in in that week, military presence, war horse, people going, music, music blowing. So people know that he was coming as well. A military, he, I'm coming to this festival because I'm going to try and keep peace. Because if I don't keep peace, it's potentially I have to go up to, to Caesar because my head is on the line. I could die. So I'm coming to keep the peace because I don't want to revolt. And he's done this many a time. However, there's a bit of a tension between him and the Jewish people because the first time, one of the first times when he became governor, at night, his, his army went into Jerusalem and, set, and they took the Roman standards in. And it bare the image of Caesar. And the place and the Jews were so angered, they sent a whole delegation over to Caesarea. And for five days straight, it's documented that they didn't leave him alone. They were pleading with him. They were begging him to take these standards out of Jerusalem because it was an insult to the image of God. They shouldn't belong there. They didn't belong there. And five days straight... I don't know about you, that's a lot of, if people are constantly saying, no, remove them, remove them, that's a lot, that would do your head in, wouldn't it? Absolutely do your head in. And so at the end of the five days, it gets to the sixth day, and he's had enough, and he turns to his, the, the, the military detachment, or whatever you want to call it, and says to them, draw your swords. And as they draw their swords, all the Jews, they lay down on the ground, and they show their necks. And he realizes in that moment, he can't kill them because if he kills them, there's going to be a revolt and he's scared of it. And he's shocked in some ways that these people die, would rather die and keep their laws than change and go away. And just keep quiet and just go back in peace. And so he doesn't do it. But Josephus and, uh, and Philo, they, they, they make him out to be cruel, brutal, dishonest. They... There's reports of him uh, taking money from uh, the temple treasury to build an aqueduct uh, in, the, in the city. And as he's doing that, there's protesters, but he's got um, soldiers dressed up in plain clothes. And while the protesters uh, one day kick up a fuss and they're going for it, he tells his soldiers in plain clothes to take them out. And so that's what, he, so that's what they do. Loads of people died that day. And so you have the Roman Empire trying to keep control and trying to keep the peace. And you can see he's, he's greedy, he's got all, all, the, all this stuff. And then you have the shepherds. We'll get to Jesus in a minute. You have the shepherds. Because it's a festival. Josephus says that on, on average during the week, and especially kind of, during the week, anybody want to guess how many uh, lambs were slaughtered? Anyone want to be brave? Everyone's on, someone's on Google. 
he, rec- he reckons that up to 256,000 lambs were killed as part of the sacrificial process during that week. And this is significant because it's a high, it's, it's significant not because we know of the lamb sacrifice of Jesus represent, well, representing that, but it's also a financial, financial economic benefit to the city. But not just to the city, to the high priests and the high priests and their family. The high priest had uh, around, you, you see it, Jesus goes into the temple and turns the temples off because most of, the, most of those would be the high priest's family. They had booze, ar- booze around. And so he's making an area of the high place. But you have entering into that city, you have all these sheep. Can you imagine? I don't, I, is, what does that look like? I've never seen so many sheep. Is it like, was it in stages? Was it in passages? Was it all in one go? What we go? But you have all these farmers which were seen as the lowest of the low, then taking all these sheep into, Jerus- into Jerusalem to be potentially bought as part of the sacrifice. But not only that, is that some people, the pilgrims will be put, so you've got the pilgrims pouring in, you've potentially got the army coming in, you've got the sheep coming in, and then the other animals coming in. It's pandemonium. There's loads of, there's loads of highs, there's loads, there's loads of activity going on. But then sometimes the pilgrims would, if they're not too far, they might bring their own lambs. So they might have them around their necks, carrying them, a bit like that image, because they don't want the journey, to, they don't want to get the, the lambs, they don't want to get them blemished on the way, because... When you took your lamb to, the, uh, to be sacrificed, one of the things that the high priests and other people used to do, they used to inspect the lambs, make sure there's no blemishes, and you could have a really good, perfect lamb, nothing wrong with it. But sometimes if they could get away with it, and more often than not that they did, they would say, your lamb has got a blemish, you can't use that, you have to buy one of ours. They would then take that sheep, virtually take it around the block, stick it at the back of the herd, and then sell it. And you'd have to buy, you never know, you might be buying your own sheep back. But the price would be extortionate. And if you're coming from a different country and you're coming in, you've then got to change your currency. So you had to go into the temple, change the currency that you had into the currency that they're using. So it'd be accepted and you've got the currency conversion. So not only you've got the currency conversion, you've got the tax, you've got... It's just never-ending. There's so, for something that's so important, there's so much pressure, there's so much financial stuff that's attached to it. There's so much, that's, that, you know, there could be revolt at any enemy. The Roman Empire is there trying to keep, keep order on, on things, and you have this tension, this build-up. And we know, and if, if we, it's go, we go put it on the screen, Zechariah 9, Jesus fulfills, he goes to, um, if you were to look at, we go read this, read this if, you to, if you see, if this is Drew, if that's the west, reverse it, east. So you've got Jerusalem, you've got the Kedron Valley right next to Jerusalem, you've got the Mount of Olives, which is right, right next to that, and the other side of the Mount of Olives, you've got Bethany and Bethpage. And so, he's, so he's, he's over this way, and he sees, and he tells his disciples, there's a cult, go get it, I'm going to sit in it, we go rise in it, and, we, and we're going to go. 
and he fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off... We can go down that... The words are jumping around. How far have I got? Sometimes when my dyslexia will jump around, go, I will cut, cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And he's fulfilling Zechariah, but not only is he fulfilling Zechariah, there's also this date. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the, all the Jewish people should have known this date. It was prophesied about. They should have known. The, the, the time when Jesus was born, they had the scripture that told them where and where. And in Daniel 9, as we come up, where it talks about and you can read it about the 70 weeks. And that if you, if you read that, and then we, won't, we haven't got time to go into, into, all the, into all the details, but basically, if you, if you add all of that up, it's basically about 483 years. And the, and, and the prophet says, from a certain date when there, there'll be a command to be rebuilt, the, Jerusalem, the, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and that is completed in Nehemiah 2 with King Xerxes. Sold. Thank you, Audrey. We'll take that. And so from that date, if you then count, and they would have known this better than us. We're conversing it. We're trying to work out what calendar it is, what the conversion, and there's, there's a whole big debate there's a whole big debate online and in scholarly books, and you can knock, go, knock, go knock yourself out. But the bottom line is that from that, the people at this time would have known we're waiting for that day of that edit, the day to rebuild. And from that day, we then know, okay, this is when the Messiah is coming back. They just had to count the days. It's quite a long amount of days, though. 173,880 days. They reckon. And so from that moment in Nehemiah and King, they say, okay, okay, we need to start count, counting. And so Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's riding on a colt, a donkey, and it's the only animal that has got a cross on it. It's got a cross where the hair goes from the mane all the way down to the tail, and it goes from one for, from the front legs from one all the way up down to the other. He's literally riding on an animal that's got a cross in it into Jerusalem, proclaiming, I am your king. He's on a donkey, a sign of peace, where, Pont where Pilate is coming in on his war horse trying to keep peace. 
Jesus is going to bring peace. And he comes and he, come, and he gets to, can I have the last slide, please? Thank you. Um, and so this is the, kind of the, the picture of um, the Mount of, where, kind of the Mount of Olives. And if you've been to Jerusalem, haven't been to Jerusalem, wanting to go, you've got the Kidron Valley at the bottom, and then you've got the, then you've got the, uh, the outer wall, and then you've got the East Gate, which is now called the Golden Gate, which Jesus would have, would have entered, entered through. And he's got to about this, around this area, and he's looking at Jerusalem. And the temple, were, they, they reckon the temple, the roof, it was made in such an awe that when you looked at the temple, it was so bright, sometimes you almost had to gaze your eyes down because the way the sun reflected off the roof of how it was made, it was so bright, it blinded you, it made you, it made your head bow because in, in that light of, of God. And he comes to this place and he looks at this city. And it says that he weeps. He doesn't, it's not just like a weeping. It is a how, it's a, it's a gut-wrenching cry. It's that, the way that it describes it, it's not just kind of tears, it's just a single tear runs down his cheek from Hollywood, but it's that he sees it and he's actually crying his eyes out publicly. Because this day, there should have been a big parade. The whole town should have been there. Not focused on any other thing, whether it's buying or selling, or where it's the, the, arm, the armies coming in, coming in, the military presence, or the hassle, trying to find places. And saying, I am coming. Even you should have known this day. He has set six expectations of the, I am coming. I have come. The person who you wanted to set you free from the oppression of Rome and the other countries that you've known is here. How do you not know the date that I was coming. How didn't you see? And he's there looking. And the celebrations going on. His disciples are celebrating. People putting their garments on the floor. Palm trees are being put, branches are put down, and he's there, look, going. You should have known. It's not about your festivals. It's about me. You should have known Isaiah 1, I'm sick and tired of your 
festive feasts and sacrifices, they're a burden to me. Will you just simply just do the right thing? Defend the case of the widow. Look after the orphan. The one who's going to bring you peace is calm and your gaze is elsewhere. Which is why he goes into Jerusalem, he takes a look around. It's, we know he goes into Jerusalem, takes a look around. But the, next, but the next day he goes back and he turns the, the things that we know about, he, he turns over the temple and tables and all of that. But it, it, there's, this, there's this tree there. There's this fig tree and he goes over to it and it's leafing and it's budding and he curses it. Because there's this immer image reflection of Jerusalem that you're all glitz, you're all shiny, there's fruit that should be there, but actually there's no fruit whatsoever, so I'm just going to cut you off. You'll never bear fruit again. And because they didn't know the time of his visitation, visitation he says, you know what, the people who are oppressing you, they're going to come back and they're going to tear down every single brick, stone, pebble, everything will be destroyed because you didn't know the time. I wonder, I wonder what he's thinking at the time. We know back, we know, late, we know later on in, in, in Luke when they're having the, uh, their Passover meal, he says, I have been longing for this, I delight in this. No other religion prophesies about their God being disgraced, being put to shame, and actually setting a date for it. That's what he does. I'm going to be put to shame. I'm going to be stripped. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be accused. No No other religion has that. But he says, I'll come to bring peace. He has come to give you peace. And we have this tension, don't we, that even in today's, even with, even in today's society, there's so much distractions around. There's so many distractions around. There's so much. There's stuff going over here. There's stuff going on, happening over there. And we're trying to. We're doing some stuff. And even even on a sun, Sunday and. We're all guilty of it. We've got stuff that's happening during the week. We're trying to rush to get into church because stuff's happening at home. Stuff's happening in the church. We're just trying to do stuff. And so we get into that time of worship and our minds, although it should be there, it's elsewhere. And then you're trying to come back and it's just like, there's so much stuff even on a Sunday trying to get that focus of saying, trying to put God in his right place. And sometimes we can take God and sometimes we can take, take this a little bit like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sadducees and 
which although we that, that, sometimes it begins with the hearts there, sometimes our motives that kind of change and our focus goes off of God and comes. And sometimes the enemy comes and says, you know, you know what, what you're doing is okay. Just, you know, everyone, everyone, everyone does it. And so what Jesus has come to do, we sort of like down, we down, we sort of downplay it and we sort of we sort of wash it down and we take the fear of God and we place it. And some people say the fear of God is just you no, know, it's just a res- being respectful of God. And the Bible doesn't say that. There's this fear of God that's so real that when the prophet, even the prophets meet God, they fall down on their face and they say, do you know what, we are just dead. Sometimes you see some people say, you know, when I'm going to get to heaven, I'm just going to, go, I'm going to give Jesus a high five and say, you're right, mate. I say, no, you won't. You might, you might do, you know, a, lot, a little bit down the line, but when you first see him, I think we're all going to be flat on our faces. Because there's going to be that purity, that's going to be that holiness that's going to come raging out, out of it. And sometimes... We get a sense of the presence of God in, this, in the meetings, which are great and fantastic. But when you have the absolute presence and glory, a purity of God in this room, it doesn't mix with sin. That's, what, that's why when the, David's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and the, it stumbles and, he, and the guy he's, he's, oh, reaches out and he touches the ark of the covenant. And it's like, it's good intentions, isn't it? I don't want the ark to fall on, so I'm going to touch it. But sin can't come into contact with the presence of God. They're not compatible. And so he dies instantly. And David's heartbroken, and naturally we would be heartbroken if that was one of our friends and people who we know. But there's this literal, our sins cost The world in which we live in just waters things down and say, do you know what, you can do that, it's okay, you can do that, you, it's okay. You can, you, know, you can justify that. You've had a hard day, so no, you can, go, you can do that, it's okay. It's like, God's saying, it's not okay. Do you get that? Our sins are real. They cost they separate us from God. There's this, as part of the beauty of the cross is that when our sins, when we do stuff wrong, the cross, when we put our faith and belief in Jesus Christ, and Jesus died on it, we know that Jesus came, he died on the cross, and three days later, he rose again. He didn't have his own tomb. He had to borrow a tomb. He goes, I won't be needing it in the future, so I'll just borrow one. Because I know I'm, going, I know I'm coming back. But the cross deals with the wrath of God. All the wrath that humanity and you should have had and I should have had when we say and we ask for forgiveness is put on Jesus on the cross. We are at peace with God and we know we can have peace with God when we put our faith in Jesus and ask him, Jesus, will you forgive me?
I know as churches and the ministers, we say, do you know what? just raise your hands and say this after me. Raising a hand doesn't save you. We do that so we can recognize, okay, that person might, so we can perhaps help you with resources. Okay, we might say, if, okay, well, let's give you a Bible to help you on your journey. How can we help you start this faith? But what makes you a Christian is in that moment when you say from the depths of your heart, Jesus, will you forgive me? I accept you. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to change my ways. Come into my life. It's that inner believing. Some people say, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church on a Sunday. I go to McDonald's, but it doesn't make me a burger. I sometimes feel like one, but it doesn't make me one. What makes you a Christian and a follower of Jesus is have you asked him as your Lord and Savior, and have you asked him for forgiveness? Have you, set, have you accepted it? That's the only way. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't get it. You say, well, my parents go to church. So I did mine. While my family goes to the Man U games every single week, doesn't make me a Man U supporter. It's down to what you believe. Not your parents, not your brother, not your sister, not your grandma. It's down to you. What do you believe? As Jesus is so excited, I'm coming on a donkey to bring peace. Because there's, there'll be a time where he's going to be coming back and he's going to be on a white horse. And when we see that time, we know that he's coming back for good. I wonder, do you know God? I might have said this, I might have said this before, but I'm trying to, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing God. Do you know what makes him laugh? Do you know what makes him smile? Not just from a head knowledge of, but personally. And I'm not saying this in a condemnation way. I'm saying is, if you love someone, you know someone. What makes him sing? What makes him dance? What makes him angry? In a righteous way, because when he gets angry, he gets angry out of love. Everything is done through the lens of love. If he gets angry, it's because he loves you enough to correct you, to bring it back to not your will be done, but his will be done. I've asked him a question. I said, God, what joke makes you roll around with laughter? You know, right from the belly of the gut of your innermost being, what joke makes you really laugh? Knowing God and my sense of humor, he'll tell me when I get to heaven. <laughs> but it's part of that. Do you know, I really want to know God, not because of my mum and my dad and my brother or sister, because I want to know God for myself. Because if God says, 
pick up your cross and follow me. If Jesus has come and he says, I have come on this day and I'm going to die for you, take all your sin, all your shame, all your guilt to set you free. And he says, take up your cross. If he calls us to take up my cross, I want to know who I'm following for myself. When the persecution comes our way, you'll stand if you know him. Because you know him. Because he's got you through the hard times. He's got you through the times when you didn't know how to pay the bills, when your children are sick or your health's not great or the job's going bad or, you tr- or your, car gets taken, your car gets taken away. There's no, f- there's no food in the, in the cupboards and you're, str- you're, str- you're struggling. Someone's, par- someone's passed away and you're having to walk through grief. But he's also there in the times when you've passed and you're celebrating. And you hear his rejoice over you saying, you know, well done, keep going. Can you feel his love chasing after you when you know you do when you know you should be doing something and you get a little bit distracted and you, it, the Holy Spirit just gives you that little check of, I know what you're doing, I'm still coming after you because he loves you. Do you recognize his visitation towards you? The chasing down of his love towards you. you know that he's come to bring you peace that you can stand before him guilt free shame free blameless all your sins forgiven the dirty rags that other people have placed on you that enemy has placed on you how you look down on yourself he takes away all of that through what he has done on the cross, and only him can do that, and he gives you new garments and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are made in my image, you're not a waste of space, you're perfect, I love you, I've died for you, you're mine, you're my inheritance, you're my bride, I've called you a royal priesthood, a holy nation, I've called you a royal priesthood, all of you here in this room are priests, not by our own doing, you can't work it out. All by it. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. You can't earn it. You don't earn it. The gifts and abilities that you have right now, that you to do your job, that is a gift that he has given you to do those jobs. The, the breath that I've just taken now for granted because we just forget about it, that is a gift. The money that I have to buy food is a gift. Life is a gift. We're not entitled to life. He gives it to us. He breathes into us. Do you know him? Do you know a God who loves you so much, he'll say, I'm predicting a day where I'm going to come and humiliate myself and lower myself and die for you in order that you all know me. And not be distracted, not feel oppressed, not feel enslaved to anyone else, but to be set free and to be loved and to be welcomed into a family and to know where you're going and know there's no condemnation. Do you know that peace?
a God who doesn't come to kill and destroy you, but to build you up, to lift you up, to restore what the enemy has taken away. Do you know him? I encourage you to get to know him. Put time in your diary to get to know him. We all have the, we're all too busy. We've got work, we've got family, we've got all this stuff. Nothing's more important than God. The things that we're dealing with in life, the insecurities, I dealt, I dealt with in the quiet place. You find peace in your quiet place when no one else is around, when it's just you and him, and he speaks to you, and you know. And when you know that, when you know that he's spoken to you, and he's guided you, and he hasn't let you down, you find you can trust him. You can trust him a little bit more. And sometimes when we come to a service and every, everything's going, going, people are falling over this way, people are sensing God over that way, and if you're a little bit me, then you're just like, yep, sometimes I don't feel a thing. And that's okay, sometimes we don't, but you know what you know because you know him in the quiet place. You recognize those moments where he's come and visited. He said, James, stop being an idiot. James, why are you necking? James, be more gracious. James, be more patient. James, you did all right in that. James, I'm proud of you. James, I know you're finding tough, but keep going. There's a uh, Martin Luther, it's a famous story how Martin Luther King, when he was trying to bring change, was at the kitchen table and he was crying out to God and he said, God, I've never heard you. And he heard a whisper say to him, I've never left you. You're never alone. Martin, you're never alone. And the same with you guys. You might not feel him, but you're never alone. Shall we pray? God, I pray in this moment Would you check our hearts? God, I pray in this, mo- in this moment, the stuff that is just in our lives, just getting the wrong, just 
mess things up, the sin in our lives, God, we first and foremost just come before you right now and say, God, forgive me. God, would you forgive me? And God, would you forgive us? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might just simply want to say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. And give your life to Jesus. But God, we thank you that you died on the cross for me and for us. We thank you that you have taken all our sin, our shame, our guilt away. Jesus, thank you that you set a time and a place that was intentional by you to set us free, to die for us. Jesus, I pray, may we know that this peace that is beyond understanding. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you bring your peace upon every single person in this room. God, I pray the shame, the guilt, the pressure, the condemnation that other people have spoken into our lives and that we speak into our own lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, may that be gone. When we feel overburdened, oppressed, enslaved, God, may you set this, break those off those chains off and may we be set free. Jesus, I pray, may all of us in this room know you down to our inner depths, our innermost being. Truly, our innermost being. Holy Spirit, I prayed this earlier, but would you freak us out? Would you, would you blow our expectations of your presence away? Would we know your glory, God? I pray, Lord, for where we gather together or in our quiet places, as a, when you meet in us connect groups or as a family, when your glory comes so close that we, we can't even stand, we have to lay on the floor, we have to crawl out the room because your glory is so thick. God, we want to know what it's like meeting you face to face. So God, I pray, would you meet us face to face? Would you meet everyone in this room face to face?